My name's Sean Bean. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, you bastards? <laughs> <laughs> My name's Jordan Broadbent. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out of the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You yeah. regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Market. On today's episode, we've got Jordan Broadbent. Yeah, so my name's Jordan Broadbent. Um, I'm currently working in the academy at Barnsley in the youth development phase. Previously been at, at clubs like Bradford and Sheffield United and also worked within an agency, a football agency, as a recruitment manager. Um, and during my studies at university, I did a dissertation into the stigmas and, and help-seeking attitudes around mental illness within within elite sport and, and football, um, which I was fortunate enough to get published in um, the Football Medical Journal and also shortlisted for the uh, Royal College of Psychiatry 2018, I think it was, the, the, the Congress that they had. So got a lot of experience within the elite football environment and also in and around the, the mental health aspects of of the game and and. and normal mental health uh, aspects as well. So I suppose linking them two together is probably why you've asked me to come onto this podcast. So joining me on today's episode is Anthony Olsen and Daniel Reed. Uh, how are we, lads? We good? Full, full name again, yeah, I'm all right, yeah. yeah. I mean, anyone want my dead. postcode? <laughs> We've got it here if anyone wants it. Um, tweet us at marking underscore man and we will DM you. Now, we played footy this weekend, didn't we? Didn't go well. No, it didn't. It was a, a tough, tough evening. Tough conditions. Yeah. I was there as well, but you know, whatever. Yeah, but you and God, I'm coming to you anyway. Oh, God, sorry, let, mate. Let Ant speak. All right. Sorry, Edward. Ant, we, it didn't go well, did it? Yeah, no, it didn't. It was a tough game. Uh, yeah, it wasn't good. Any messages for the fans? Um, uh, we'll be back. We'll be back yeah. one day. And will uh, we? Well, me and him will be. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, Dan, you've had some injury news this week, actually, haven't you? How, how are you? Um... You know, it's it's a bitter blow. I, I, you know, the fans aren't going to be happy to know it's a, it's going to be a long stretch on the sidelines. Yeah. Which, you know, for a for a man of my glorious goal scoring prowess, it's uh, yeah, it, it's been difficult to take. What is and, the um, what, what is the injury? Uh, a torn meniscus. Oh, nice. So nice. anybody listening, we are sending good um, good recovery messages to Danny on yeah. our Twitter. So if I'm anybody not. wants to send no. one in. Um, on his recovery. Could you also send larger jeans because <laughs> two months on the sidelines is probably not going to go well for my waistline because like many ex-pros who have ballooned after their uh, retirements, I'm probably just going to get that in now. What size towel do you want? <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, um, you also released a flat caps and bowler hat episode, Billy Calendar. Um, how did? did that go down? Yeah, it's gone down well. We had some nice, uh, some nice little feedback from from lots of Crystal Palace fans. It was really enjoyable. It's another one of those stories that, like, I wouldn't have known about had I not done the episode. Um, another time, it's got us to speak to somebody who's been really interesting. So I had a, a chat with Jim Wright, who wrote the the book, the sad story of Billy Callender. 
Um, and that was that was really funny. He's, he's a really interesting guy, and it, it's it's one of those stories that's like it's very kind of epitomizes its time, if you know what I mean. A man who who's who went through a really big loss, a really big tragedy, and didn't have an enormous amount of family and friends and stuff to lean on. And at that time in the, in the 1930s, didn't have anybody to talk to, wasn't encouraged, and you know subsequently took his own life on the back of it. And you know, it is a sad story. There is some really heartwarming elements of it, and it does give a nice picture of both what the, the the sort of society was like at that time, as well as what football was like at that time. So, yeah, check that out on on all the usual feeds. Fantastic. Um, now, but before we get into the interview, we always have an opening question, and today's opening question is: What is your favourite and least favourite drill ever given to you by a football coach? So we'll start with the least favourite, and take it in turns, and then move to favourite. Um. Do you want to go first, Ant? No, you can go first. <laughs> All of them are my least yeah. favourite. Any that involves running, I don't really like. Um, there was, there's one that we, you'd always end up doing, uh, you'd always end up doing in pre-season, which is just back and forth with cones, which we used to make the kids do as well, didn't we, Ant? Mm. Quite a lot. Um, yeah, I, I never really enjoyed that. To be honest with you, I didn't really enjoy anything that didn't involve just playing football, to be honest with you. We used to play one when the three of us used to play together. Remember the three team game? I do. Yeah. yeah. Which was which was great. But no, I, I um no, anything involved running. I'm not really into that. If I could if I can just kick it, I just like kicking it. I don't really like doing the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm kinda of the same. I don't think anything involves like long distance running against your teammates isn't the <laughs> nicest feeling in the world. <laughs> do you remember, right? So the three of us went and did that pre season with um so our friend Joycey, who we actually interviewed, who will be on the show at some point, he's a, a coach. He went and coached out in, in America, and he used to run a, a Saturday league team. Yeah. And the three of us went to a pre-season training session with him, didn't we? And he was doing a running drill where you had to do the diagonal corner to corner of half the pitch, and then across, and then diag- and it was like stop, start, stop, stop for like forty minutes or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. It's still filming legs. Bare. It was horrid. <laughs> it was really horrible. One of the balls coming out. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's the worst thing. Is that like oh, I, I am here to play football? It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Oh, oh, he's getting the balls. He's getting the balls, and then it's like hold the ball and run round or yeah. something. Like, oh, <laughs> Put it up safe. your top. I always remember as a kid, um, our manager had this game where you. You'd be in the corner of the AstroTurf and the ball would say. be in the middle and you'd have to run to the middle. Is this where you'd shout two numbers? Yeah. yeah. And you always like hoped like the chubby kid or something was against you or something. Yeah. <laughs> and then when when you saw the like uh, like the chubby kid come out first and then you just look and then there's that one kid who's just like great at tackling really fast, really <laughs> smashes him. <laughs> I think, like, um, be like um do you, do you remember him um, playing at Chasbury? Yeah, and, you know the the, yeah. the the hall inside. Oh, we used to play that in the hall, and it'd just be like carnage, yeah. absolutely <laughs> carnage. <laughs> there was a there was another one at, at Shafts as well, which was like they'd have like gates or something, so they put like cones down, yeah, like, yeah, and yeah. you'd have to go and like tap it through the gate. Yeah, and, and someone's got to stop it on the other side. I didn't really understand what that was for. I, I still don't really get it. Well, so when Ant and I used to coach the kids' team. We used to let them do a drill for like the last ten minutes if they if they behaved themselves, <laughs> and it was literally that game, wasn't it? Where it was like a three team game. So three team game is basically you split everybody into three teams, yeah. and one team is the defending team, and the other two have to try and keep the ball. And the minute that it swaps over, that the team that yeah. loses it becomes the defending team. And we used to play it for ages, didn't we? At, at Rear God, it was <laughs> boss. It was such a good game, but. 
we used to play it with the, with the kids team but it essentially it was just a free for all we basically say to them right last 10 minutes so if you put it you know you put the graft in, in training last 10 minutes it was basically all tackles are not fouls everyone just piled into each other and they loved it didn't need to be fair they just fly into each other and then I remember we'd been doing it for about three weeks, realised we hadn't once brought the first aid kit with us either. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no one got hit, and it was great fun. People need to boot each other a oh, little bit more, I think. I'll tell you, tell you another one, and it's not in football, but in rugby, they, um, they have like a one-on-one tackling thing. <laughs> so, But he make the cones like really narrow, so you can't really get away from it. Yeah. And I remember going back, I played rugby until I was about 13, 14, and I went back when I was 17. And there was this guy who was absolutely massive. And I was like, you know when you're looking at someone going, you've you've realised the gym is a thing and I, yeah. I haven't. <laughs> yeah. And I was looking at him, I was going, oh, I've got to tackle him here. I was like, he's like six foot four. It's like, <laughs> it's like he's, he's massive. It's like, I was like, oh God. So I'm looking, standing there and going, I don't want to do this. And you know when you tackle someone, you're going, I've done it. But I'm like, at what cost? At what cost? <laughs> <laughs> Danny, can you just give us a little bit of background why we chose to speak to Jordan Broadbent? Yeah, so Jordan's um, Jordan did a tweet, which I think was on World Suicide Prevention Day or World Suicide Awareness Day, um, which is kind of about his sort of experience of suicide, which had, it had been in his family and kind of how it had affected his life. Um, and it was a really, really lovely tweet in, in a way. It was a really sad story, but it, it was really well written. It came across really genuine. And he's obviously a, a coach who works in, in academy football, so... It made perfect sense to us to reach out and speak to Jordan, and yeah, it, I'm really glad that we did. It was an absolute pleasure. We do a lot of these interviews. Um, you know, I'd say 99.9% of them have been have been really fun and really enjoyable, and they've been great people to speak to. But some of them do stick out um, in your memory as being just enjoyable evenings. And the evening that we spent speaking to Jordan was one of them. It was it was a pleasure, wasn't it? It was. It was. And Ant, can you give the listeners the theme, please? Uh, yeah, so uh, the theme this week is learning to feel weak and, and becoming a man of the house. Um, obviously, Jordan mentions the, the situation that he went through, and I think learning to feel weak doesn't sound great, but it's something that you need to do to grow, I, I, I think, and particularly when you go through something like that. Uh, and becoming a man of the house, as you know, he mentioned when he was, you know, he was still a teenager and, and how he had to adapt to that and, and the struggles that he went through and it's it's not something that that I think I'd wish on anyone really to 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 lose that that influence in their life and and you know that that stability as well it it's you know it's really tough and and trying to learn it I think even when you when you are a, a father yourself and and you're kind of aware of what's going on and and nothing's kind of really happened it's really difficult it's a really tough thing to to become you know there are situations where oh I've got to kind of protect these people here and it, and it, it you know it, in a perfect world, it shouldn't really, really happen. But, you know, there was <laughs> such a weird uh, situation the other day. We, I don't know if we want to go over that piece. Go for it, there was, um, there was a situation I was in a... It took me, me lad to the, to the playground the other day. And uh, there was a couple of kids who weren't being very nice. And he just kind of stood there and you're going, what do I do? What do I do? And unluckily, Hannah... Kick fuck out of them. <laughs> no, no. So luckily, the, my, my missus, she, um, she just went over and just approached it in like a... You know, nice, calm fashion. Just say, oh, look, your, your kids haven't been very nice to me ever since. Ever, oh, haven't been very nice to, to uh, my boy. <laughs> imagine two little yeah. four-year-olds bullying you. Haven't <laughs> been nice to my, my boy for ever since we got here, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not really fair. And I just kind of walked off. And whereas in my head, I was going, what, what, would, uh, what would that 
Donkey Kong fella do on Mario, <laughs> which will start kicking, kicking, uh, kicking fuck out of things. And I, it's difficult. It, it's just really hard. And you're like, when do I step in? Kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that you battle with on a daily basis, particularly Absolutely. with a, with a mm-hmm. kid as well. And, and I think if you're having to look after, you know, mums and, and, and other family members as well, it, it becomes a lot harder. So, I think one of the themes that, that comes up in the interview, which is interesting that you, you mentioned there, answers. I think. You know, as as lads, relationships with dads can often be quite difficult, mm-hmm. um, for a number of different reasons. But you know, ultimately, I would you know I don't want to talk for everybody because people have different experiences. But I certainly looked up to my dad from a young age, um, and I know you've said the same thing, Ant, about your dad's the person who knows the answer to everything. Oh yeah, they, you can, they, you can you ask, ask him, him, and they just always know it. I was money made. Oh well, this 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 is how it works. Uh, back, uh, like, what? Back, back in AD, um, <laughs> why do you know that? Like, there's no need for you to know that. So I think when you you when you have that role model, and when that role model is taken away, it can be really difficult. And I think Jordan spoke very eloquently about it, and yeah, I'm sure people will take quite a lot from it. Absolutely. Um, would. Dive straight into the interview now and then we'll have a good chat about it afterwards. Uh, So see you all on the other side. So so just to talk about sort of your earliest football memory, was you always football mad? Was it something you were always going to do? Did you play yourself when you were a youngster? Yeah, yeah. So my my earliest football memory and and probably the reason why I support Sheffield Wednesday is kind of 92, 93, I'd have been about six at the time. And um, in my family, you're either red or blue, as, as as many families are divided when it comes to big city football clubs. So um, for me, at, at, at that point in time, it was always going to be blue because of one person, that was Chris Waddle. So watching watching Chris Waddle play for you, you, you the, the team that you sort of half your family support there was only ever one option on who I was going to support and and he's probably the reason why I kind of fell in love with football um and yeah in in, in terms of you know I've, I've always played football been involved in academies and um played non-league in the pyramid and, and obviously I'm I'm with um elite academies now so yeah it's, it's, it's been a massive part of my life and um obviously given me a lot of highs and, and some lows as well in terms of um what the job entails it's, it's, it's that kind of volatile industry so so yeah it's, it's been it's been a huge part of my life since as long as i can remember and other than you know my, my, my family it's, it's probably my biggest passion in life and you mentioned that you've been involved in academies and, and played before and non-league did you make a decision kind of early that you always wanted to be involved in football even if it wasn't playing full-time I think so yeah I think what I recognized early early on in sort of my um, teenage years is that I wasn't going to be good enough to to play at elite level professional level um, so I kind of started doing my coaching badges and getting in and, in, in and around the, the coaching environment as as often I could and as early as I could um, so, so yeah, that that was always that was always I was I always had really good sort of self awareness in terms of that. I kind of knew that I wasn't going to make it to what level I, I deemed as professional or what whatever level I wanted to get to within my heart. But I had the self awareness to to realise that I wanted to be involved in football moving forward and and for the rest of my life really. So, I, coaching was probably the the route to go. And you know, I'm I'm probably a better coach than I ever was a player but that wasn't hard to be fair I was, I was a bang average footballer 
But you, you do seem highly motivated and you are qualified to your way for A level. You've obviously done your B before then. Uh, got a BSc in sports science. So what's motivated you to, to carry on down that path? Um, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I, and I kind of, you know, I don't want this to come across as, as name dropping, but you, you see players that kind of you, you've worked with or, or, or had some sort of influence on their on their career so far so you know probably the the, the player is doing the, the best currently at the moment is someone like Don Calvert Lewin now I come into my my, my coaching journey really I was a young young coach when Don was kind of when I was in, involved with Don and I won't say I had a direct influence on his career but I was in and around his development and when you see players of of that level you know David Brooks is another one and Aaron Ramsdale you know, you, you see them go on to what they become is, is you know, such a, a self-satisfying feeling, really. You know, and it's um, that's the reason why a lot of us in academies and a lot of us working with, with under-18 footballers in, in developmental football, that's the reason we do it, because we're never going to be millionaires by, by working in academies. You know, it's, it's in, in terms of hourly, hours you put in, in in terms of pay that you get is, is, is quite poor, really, but that's the satisfaction that I get in terms of developing players, and and also also when you're in a competitive environment, is is the the competition, the the, the winning of games. So, but yeah, when, when you see players develop and when you see them go on and, and, and make debuts and and go on and reach the highest of their highs that they can get to, it's it's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah, they, they've got a really good academy at Sheffield United, haven't they? Not just the players you mentioned, but even the amount that just seem to. To play in the pyramid, which is yeah. hard enough as it is, making it from that academy stage. Myself and Danny are both Tramia fans, so you're probably familiar with Harvey Gilmore. Well, um, really closely with Harvey, um, probably from um, the age of 14. Um, I, was, I was involved with Harvey, and first and foremost, he's, he's just a great kid. Well, I say kid, I'm not talking about his kids, he's a man now, and yeah. a really, really good person. Always, always turned up to training, worked hard, um, was honest with himself, was honest with the coaches. Um, and all we really did at the time was kind of develop the environment for, for players that had to flourish. Regan Slater is another one who, who was a similar age to Harvey. All we did was provide a platform and, and the environment for, for them players to go on and, and flourish. They got themselves there. I, I, you know, no, no coach will ever get a player to where he, he eventually gets to. The players get there themselves. All we are as coaches is, is facilitators. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And working as an academy coach at Sheffield United, Bradford and the likes, does it become more difficult when you don't have that ex-player profile behind you? Do you feel like there's more hurdles for somebody going down the more educational route with it? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I, I, I think it's... I think it's um, there's, there's two ways I think of it in, in terms of, yeah, I think it's harder to get in in terms of, you know, I'm, I, I wasn't a professional footballer. Um, I think it's harder to gain players' respect in terms of, for instance, if, if a Jordan Broadbent is taking a coaching session and a Frank Lampard is taking, taking a coaching session, Frank Lampard's automatically got your attention because he's Frank Lampard. Whereas a Jordan Broadbent might take a session, two sessions, three sessions to get your attention for, for the players to, to understand that, you know, my, my knowledge is, is good or an, an, another coach who, who hasn't been in the professional 
game as a player. Their knowledge is good. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's it's possibly harder to to number one get in because you haven't got that profile. But but number two, I think it's also harder to um, to uh, attain that level of trust early early goals. Do you think when the when you are in there, there's there's almost looking at it positively a greater upside, uh, sort of an element of you shouldn't meet your heroes. So if you imagine you've watched the club your whole life and then you end up getting coached by a former player you admired and he's not the person you thought he'd be, or maybe he doesn't translate into a coach as he did in the, as a player, and then you come along who might not have the same awareness they have, but you may be a better coach, and all of a sudden they think actually this guy gets me on a human level. Yeah, possibly, and, and and I think what you just said there, just to finish your sentence there, that in, in, for me the hardest bit of coaching is, um, or, or whenever I go to work with a team or go to work with players, I have to gain their trust first. So I probably won't coach early on within within working with a new group of players. I always think that the the, the hardest but the most important thing to do is is gain their trust in terms of once you've gained their trust, then you can be really honest with the player. In terms of, you can tell them when they're doing well, but you can also tell them when or things they need to improve. And because they trust you, and because you've got that sort of working relationship, um, it, it becomes easy. Really, it becomes easy. So, so yeah, I think um, going on to what you're saying in in terms of sort of not meeting your heroes and and having that profile when you go in. Not having that profile, I, I can almost imagine that to be kind of hard as well because I think there's almost an expectation of you. You know, on on the flip side, the positive for not having that playing gra- background is there's no expectation from me. You know, but if if a Frank Lampard does walk into a group of players, there's there's massive expectation on him already. So every there's there's, there's sort of positives and negatives to both of it. I think. Yeah, absolutely, and. Just, just for yourself on a personal level, I was, I was having sort of a little look at um, where you've worked today, and obviously managed at Sheffield. You've been a director of Premier Sports Coaching, Sheffield United, as we touched on, a recruitment manager, a pitch representation. What do you see yourself as first and foremost, and, and sort of what is your ambition with, within the game? Uh, it's a good question. I think. Um... My enjoyment comes from the coaching side of it, being on the grass, working with players. Um, so, God, that is a good question, actually. I th- I'm probably at a crossroads, I think. You know, I've, I've worked in the recruitment side. I've, I've worked in the coaching side. I've, I've developed some really good um, experiences in the roles I've had. But where, where I get my most enjoyment is, is working with players and, and being involved in the day-to-day Um goings on within a football club I think I think that's where a, a lot of people within football will, will tell you where they get their their most enjoyment from so so yeah in, in answer to your question I'd probably say a, a coach first and foremost uh, Danny's going to come on to more of the well-being stuff later on yeah. but as somebody who's such an advocate for it how much of that do you put into your coaching with your players especially when a lot of them are at a young and probably quite an impressionable age yeah, massively. It's, it's something that, again, um, I am very self-aware of in terms of uh, the effect that I'm potentially having on the mental well-being of a player. Um, now, when I say that, you know, I, I obviously want to be the most supportive coach 
I possibly can. It's, it's, it's without goes without saying. It's a safe environment to, for players to work and for players to fail and and make mistakes. But I also think there's a a responsibility as coaches that that we sort of do help um, promote resilience and, and try and breed with resilience within within our players. Um, so that 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 can be you know it can can be done purposefully. It might be done naturally through the the, the competition of the game, but what it might look like is putting players in a in a situation where you know they can't succeed, um, but all the time giving them the most supportive environment and safe environment where they feel that they can fail. Um, because I do think that's what breeds resilience. You know, and there's no sportsman, whether you're a, a conference player or whether you're Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi, the elite of the elite, there's no sportsman that has not felt failure. There is no sportsman that hasn't experienced not being successful. And I genuinely think you have to have them experiences in order to overcome them and, and, and come stronger on the other side. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm massively, massively self-aware of the, the potential effect I could have on a, on a young player. And although I want to be the most supportive coach I can potentially possibly be, you know, I also want to challenge my players. I also want to expose them to, to difficulty, which hopefully on um, on the other side of that difficulty, they, they, they do become a bit more resilient, stronger people, stronger characteristics to, to go on and deal with it the next time it, it may come around. Yeah. And, and how difficult can it be knowing you, you're teaching a, an age group, say 16 to 18, and they're not all going to make it? They're difficult conversations are going to have to be had. There just isn't enough contracts for everybody to go around almost. So it feels like it's a ticking time bomb in a way for the upset and hurt. But as you say, you want to prepare them as best as possible because it doesn't mean it's the end of the road for the career. It's just the end of the road, maybe where they are there and then. Yeah. When I, when I came into to coaching um, in an elite environment, I was, I was lucky enough to work under Nick Cox, who's the, who's now academy manager at, at Man United. He was academy manager at Sheffield United. He had a really big influence on my career. And, you, you know, coming in, coming into that environment, you, everybody thinks that the next Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola and, you know, really wanted to make a big, big impression. And he just kind of sat me down and or, or sat the staff down and he, he said, look, 99% of these players aren't going to make it, you know, and, 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 and that's the real world that we live in. So, the phrase he used was we, we have to be developers of people as well as the player. And when you sit back and think about it, it's like you understand that these players that are coming into the academy environment are giving a hell of a lot of their childhood away to try and chase the dream of, of being a professional footballer. Now, what are we doing as coaches and facilitators to develop the person? Because knowing full well that 99% of them aren't going to make it. So again, probably going on to my previous answer, what what life lessons do we do we give the kids? Well, you know, we try to give them number one, an enjoyable, safe place to come and train. Number two, we try and develop them as people in terms of an example, building characteristics like like resilience, and also the the experiences they they get within academy football. They have to be the best childhood experiences because although we're taking a lot of the time away from their childhood, we, you know, we're also hopefully adding adding many more experiences to their childhood so so yeah I, I think I was I was possibly lucky that the timing of me coming into my 
um, coaching journey and, and my formative years as a coach. I had, I had a really good mentor in in Nick Cox, who who is now getting the sort of accolades that he deserves of, of being Manchester United Academy manager. Yeah, absolutely. And what you've just said there, it, it really makes sense. Um, we're, off, we're seeing a lot more clubs improve on on facilities, improve in education, uh, having colleges attached to, to the club and, and those type of things. Do you think it's definitely trended in the right direction, something that football clubs are waking up to that we need almost a duty of care to these players to, to know if if they're getting released at 18, 19, 20, that they're doing so with as much life experience and as much education behind them as possible. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think, John, I think this, especially this this last uh, few years has, has really sort of opened eyes to the the pressures that the professional or the, or the, the, the chasing of the dream um, Add, adds to a, a, a young man or, or young woman's woman's life. So yeah, I, th- I think we're becoming a, a lot more aware of, of the social pressures and the peer pressures that are involved in academy football and, and elite football at, at the top level. Um, but I also think we've got a long way to go. Yeah, and we've had plenty of ex-pros on, on the show and uh, spoken to quite a lot of people and they've sort of said that when I was at a certain club, they, they probably could have done a little bit more for me and it, it sort of made me me think do you as a coach feel like you have the tools to do as much for for your players as possible so when we hear about players who may be suffered within a club psychologically and um, there's often almost a, an expectation that the club should have done more and, and maybe this the staff that were there at the time but I suppose the environment's got to be there for everybody. It's got to be there for the coaches to be able to offer that service. It's got to be maybe financed in a way where you're not just getting referred to the wrong person as well. Do, do you feel being involved in um, professional football clubs is enough to support players with sort of mental health issues? Yeah, yes. I, I, I think, as, again, it's... So the, the the way the way I feel about it now is yeah we're doing a lot the PFA are giving a lot of um, raising a lot of aware, awareness in and around mental health and mental illness and there are avenues where you can you can go and get that that help if you want to I think the the, the main the main problem for me and what doing my studies sort of um, made prevalent was you can have all the you can have all the places to go. Okay, you, you can have all the, the psychiatrists or psychologists or help centers or whatever it may be. You can have all of these places, but it, it genuinely comes down to the individual. And I think the real problem that we have, and again, possibly as, as a male, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of it more than anyone, but I'm also the biggest adver- advocate of it, is, is talking. Now, Yes, there are places you can go to get help and there's always support networks in and around professional footballers, but it ultimately comes down to the player. Is 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 he is he willing to 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 come out and say, you know, I need help? And it should be the easiest, easiest three words you'll ever say. But you know, you you you, you bet your mortgage that it's it's the hardest thing to ever say. Now you you, you flip it on its head in terms of um if we, when you talk about addiction. So when you've got an when you've got an addictive personality or you've got an addiction, you have to be willing to help yourself. And I think there's a lot of similarities when it comes to mental illness, and especially within the sport and environment. You have to be willing to help yourself before others can help you. So, 
yes, there is there is avenues and there is a lot of support what clubs can do, but there's still a huge stigma, still a huge stigma around what you know men and the way they speak about mental health, and especially for me in a in a sporting environment because you know sport mirrors society you know sport is just a microcosm of society and if it's happening in sport it's happening in society racism homophobia it happens in sport because it happens in society i suppose the next question probably a little bit difficult to answer is but what can people do do you feel to help themselves is there anything you've done in your studies that you've found useful um yeah, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge advocate and I'm a huge promoter of men talking and, and opening up and being honest. And it's, it's probably one of my weaker characteristics within my own personality. You know, I, I, do I open up as much as I could? No, probably not. Probably not. Um, but I'm kind of aware through my studies of why I don't do that. Um so it's, it is a really tough question. I think going on what what how you kind of finished or summed up the my previous answer was people show it in different ways, and I think you kind of have to be the a really really um, expert judge of character to see those signs and signals. And it's probably only when you get to to know a certain individual that that you kind of recognise them, them trigger points if you like, and them and them trigger actions. Absolutely. And and you spent time as, as manager of Sheffield FC, um, famously the oldest club in the world. Yeah. How different did you find the coaching players at a lower level to coaching players in the academy setting? Uh, I suppose the, the part-time and the full-time nature of it as well. Mm. It was tough. It was it was really tough. Uh, probably the main reason being I was, I was young at the time. I, I think I was only... Uh, about 27, 28 when I took the manager's job there. And, you know, managing players who are older than you, having to make tough decisions with with those kind of players and, and manage their expectations. But the, the thing for me, and um, and this is no sort of slight on any, any player that I work with, I, I work with some really, really good players and, and some really great characters, but it was... It, it was it was the sort of passion for it really you know I wanted to be successful I was still in that moment in my life or as a coach I thought you know I'm, I'm going to be the next Chris Wilder if you like or I'm going to be the next whoever it may be and this is the start of my journey to to being Jose Mourinho so I, I was I was so passionate about it and I was so kind of um, interested and, and swamped by wanting to be successful but probably was working with players who who, who were kind of doing it just for a little bit of extra cash, you know, to pay to pay the mortgage at the end of the month. So it was it was a really really good learning curve for me. Um, but yeah, I think that that was the hardest point was me taking it probably a little bit more seriously than than the players, and, and me probably caring a little bit more than the players because it was it was what I thought was the start of my journey to to being the next Jose Mourinho. Did it put you off? Doing that moving forward is it something you'd go back to? I think in the in the the, the sort of um, the early stages of, of, of coming out of it, yeah, it, it, it did a little bit. Um, but I think that was down to my age. 
you know, I was like I say, I was 28 when I come out of that, or 27, I can't remember, but so I was still really, really young. So I was thinking, is this for me? You know, can I can I make it if you like? But I think what what you do as you get older is is you you sort of um, you do have a lot more self awareness about you. you you're, you're probably more comfortable in your own skin. And I think if I did that now, I, I did that job now. I took a job at a similar level to that, whether it be Conference North or whatever it may be. Then you know, I, th I think it'd be a different a different scenario. But I think um, life life was the teacher then, you know, and, and growing a little bit older and again becoming more comfortable in my own skin. And are you somebody who's quite harsh on themselves, Jordan? Inwardly, yes. Inwardly, yeah. Um, I, I sometimes think I mask that with with confidence, which sometimes comes across as overconfidence. Um, but I think everyone that's self doubt in the in the sort of corner of your mind is, is, you know, it's always sitting on your shoulder, isn't it? We, you know, we're all. I think I can't think who it was. I was reading something the other week called imposter syndrome, where you, you the, the amount of people that are in an industry feel like an imposter in the industry because they don't they're not that self-confident in terms of what they're actually doing um so yeah i think i am more as i've become older because i've 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 got you know a, th a thicker skin now and i think well people in and around you are going to point where you're wrong so you might as well be the first person to point where you're wrong and and accept it because when other people point out that you're wrong then you're ready for that that sort of criticism that's coming um Jordan, the, the the interview itself, as we kind of touched on before, came about after the um, the tweet that you did about your dad, which we which came onto our onto our timeline, which was kind of prompted us getting in touch with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, could you sort of talk us through that 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 event in your life? Well, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's um, sort of the most poignant part of my life in terms of I've never ever had to deal with a pain like that ever again or, or since since that time and i hope i never have to deal with it again like that um i was 18 years old and um my dad was suffering with depression and he he committed suicide um and and, and took his own life he, he took an overdose and took his own life and and yeah it's a uh, it's Yes, it's the hardest point of my life, and I don't think I've ever been the same person since that that period of time. Um, probably haven't dealt with it the way I should do again. Going into to what we were saying in terms of talking about it, um, I can't really think of a time where I've sat down and thought, right, I'm going to talk to you about my dad's suicide. Um, probably only now with these this last sort of couple of years since I've met my. The mother of my children, Laura. I, I speak to Laura at times now, but she's probably the only person I've ever really spoken to in 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 depth about it. But yeah, it's coming up to. Uh, I think this is the fifteenth year. He's he's not been with us, so I've spent nearly as much of my life with him as I have without him. So it's a long time ago, but the, you know, it's still it's still obviously fresh in my memory and still hurts as much as it did when. The, the, you know the day that it happened and was it you you said there obviously that your dad was suffering from depression was it was that something you were aware of or did it come as a almost like out of the blue 
No, I was aware of it. I, I understood. I understood. He, he was he was diagnosed with bipolar, um, and obviously uh, suffered with anxiety and, and, and depression, and he was he was on tablets and medication through that. Um, so yeah, I was I was fully aware of it. But like I say, I was I was eighteen years old, and I think you kind of, I think you kind of number one, you kind of brush it under the carpet and think it'll be all right. You know, it'll be all right. He'll get over it. He's just feeling a bit. He's feeling a bit shit. It'll it'll be all right. And um, I think at that point in your life as well, you're so self. What's the word I'm looking for? Not self obsessed, but you're so sort of focused on on your life and on what you're going to be and, and your aspirations and your dreams that everything else kind of becomes a, a a secondary thought if that makes sense and, and looking back you know if it'd be completely different now you know i'm 34 years old i've got more life experience i, I understand what's going on in the world uh, it'd be completely different but yeah in answer to your, to your question dan I, I was fully aware of it um but obviously not to not to that extreme you know I, I didn't know what was eventually going to happen um you know do, do i have regrets in some of my actions yeah but i probably do um i probably wish i was more aware of, of what was going on i probably wish i could sit down with my dad and say no i'm here for you if, if that makes sense but i think at the time as well and, and i'm i'm probably sure you lads another another sort of lads growing up at that age it's a really testing time for a son and a father i think 18 you, you know you come in you're coming into your formative years as a or sorry your your, your, your formative years when you when you're turning into a man and i think you kind of have them testing moments with your dad you know the man of the house and and that kind of thing so our relationship probably wasn't as good as it should have been at that time but then i look back and i think well every lad will have gone through that at some point where where they have sort of testing points in their relationship with, with their parents so um so yeah i was aware of it and, and there was there's probably other things that i could have done in, in, in my behavior when i was experiencing that but again i was i, I don't want to be too harsh on myself because i was 18 years old you mentioned there jordan that you since that time you don't think you've ever ever been the same how and it's probably quite difficult to sort of put into words you know a distinct manner but how did that you know your dad's death how did that change you as a as an individual do you think um well f first and foremost I, I didn't have any discipline in my life um in terms of my, you know my, my dad was probably the, the disciplinarian in the house as, as probably many dads are within their households um you know and and that's not to say that Sort of after my dad's death my mum my mum wasn't the disciplinarian she was she was she was the best mum that i could have ever wished for um but she wasn't my dad you know and, and i think especially in them formative years of when you're becoming a man it's a really important time in your life where you need that sort of fatherly figure and i don't want to i don't want to say that flippantly because on the flip side of that where i think i'm hugely lucky is the fact that i had 18 19 years of a a very very good dad you know he, he, he was everything that i could have wished him for it to be as a dad to me so understanding that you know some people don't even know their dads or some people lose their dads earlier or some people have got shit dads basically so um i had a fantastic dad but as soon as as soon as my dad 
my dad died, I, I lost that discipline in my life. And I think at that point, you know, you, you kind of make decisions as an 18, 19 year old lad that sometimes aren't, aren't the best decisions, you know, and, and I probably had a good few years of doing that. It wasn't like I had a six month blowout where I had a 18 months where I was, I was a little bit reckless that it, it, it went on into my early twenties and, and mid twenties. In fact, where, you know, I kind of, um, wasn't really a nice person. I wasn't a bad person, but I, I, I just kind of, I don't know, again, like I say, didn't have that discipline where, you know, your dad would give you a clip around the head and say, pull yourself together kind of thing. Or, you know, I, I think it really, really affected the the five, six years after my dad dying and, and possibly longer where I made some, some poor decisions in life. And you said there about you, you perhaps didn't open up enough you perhaps didn't talk enough and 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 sort of meeting your your current partner kind of, mm. sort of helped with that why did why do you think that was it's, it's something that we've discussed with a few people who've, who've come on the podcast about maybe not being able to open up and until maybe get in the right relationship do you think mm. there was a reason for that or do you think it was just right person right time and that sort of yeah thing? i think probably because i'm you, you know you, i'm i'm not we we like we've got two children together, and and with you know touch wood with with a perfect little family at the moment. So I think what what Laura's given me, she's given me, um, she's made it okay for me to feel weak at times, you know, and and especially the current climate that we're in. You know, I got made redundant towards the end of last year, as it happens in football. Obviously, it, it, it's going to happen at some point. You're not in work. So I got made redundant and um, you know, then a global pandemic comes along where it's the hardest time to get a job. So I think it, it gave us a lot of time together um, to talk, really, to, 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 to just talk. Because there weren't, weren't much else that you could really do, was there, during that time. So, you know, me and Laura have been together five years, but it's probably only this last few months, really, that I've kind of gone in detail about how I felt at that time, how I felt the five years after, and how I feel now as a as a, as a young man. Um, so yeah, it's. I think she's made it okay for me to feel weak. By doing that, I feel safe with her. When I talk to her, I feel safe. I know there's no judgment. I know there's. It's a safe environment for me to talk. I know she's not going to look at it as weakness. Um, so so yeah, I, th I think there's a real. Um, sort of narrative about why we we choose the people we do to speak to the, the, the tweet that obviously that, that we spoke about before the, the reaction to that was amazing it was the yeah, yeah. what kind of prompted you to, to do that tweet? i mean just doing prep for this interview I've, I've i've obviously been been scouring your twitter and stuff and you do tweet about mental health quite a bit yeah but never so much about you do you know what i mean it's often about, about yeah i think about things. I'm, I'm i'm always I'm always wary about what I tweet because I think there's this real culture at the minute where you tweet for likes now or, or whatever it may be, Instagram or Facebook. I, I don't do any of the other social media, but we're talking about Twitter. So I'm, I'm always conscious and wary about what I tweet in terms of, is this coming across like I want attention? Is this coming across like I'm having myself a little bit, you know, for the want of a better phrase. So I don't know if I'm honest. I don't know. I, I, I as you say, I, I tweet regularly, and I, and I kind of 
always retweet people who are sort of doing good things within the the mental health industry or, or people dealing with mental illness i always try and retweet and, and um bring sort of exposure to to other people's work what they're doing but but yeah you're right dan it's, it's, i don't really tweet about myself personally and my feelings around mental health um so i don't know if i'm honest i really don't i really don't um and i can't i can't remember word for word what the tweet was if i'm honest and i can't remember whether there was a, a specific whether it was an anniversary or, or what it may have been um i think it was um it was suicide prevention world suicide was, yeah 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 that that was it so so yeah i, I think you know, you know people kind of make a judgment of you before they know your story don't they you know and um and and um i don't know if i'm honest it's, it's a hard question to ask but at, at that time i just thought it's suicide prevention we we need to make awareness why why would people look at my tweets and say well what does he know about it so i suppose it's probably to show that i had a lived experience of of suicide probably that's the right answer I thought um I thought it was I thought it was great. I thought it was really well worded. And I think do you know what? Do you know what I think probably was the reason why it got such a good reaction and it resonates with people. And it's it's the same with the the way you've spoken this evening is it it you it it's genuine, it comes across as genuine and heartfelt and you know that it's done for the right reasons and stuff. And I think I, you are right with, with this type of thing. Unfortunately, it's the same with anything. It, you know, people will will write stuff or say things or do stuff or for attention or publicity or whatever it might be but the kind of the 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 stuff that comes across as genuine does cut through that noise and i think that's that was that was true for for what you wrote how did it did the response that you got for that did that how did that make you feel i, I suspect it was probably the first time you've had quite a lot of that public attention around that subject personally. Yeah. yeah i think i think we're all a victim of we we like people to like our stuff don't we you know like we're human let's be honest it's not like you want to put a tweet out there or you want to put a, an instagram post out there you don't put it out there thinking i hope this doesn't get any likes <laughs> do you know what i mean you, you don't put it mind if i was thinking that you don't you don't put it out there thinking i i absolutely no one retweets this you put it out there because you either want people to know something or again, you know, I'd like to think I was doing it for the right reasons. You want to, you want to bring a little bit, a little bit of exposure to something, or have an opinion on something. So, to get that kind of um, retweet, um, or the, I don't even know the numbers, what it was, but to, to to get that kind of exposure for a tweet like that was kind of, it felt, um, it, it's weird. It felt like a little bit of weight lifted off my shoulders, and, and I don't want that to sound a bit shitty or a bit kind of I, I, I don't know what i'm trying to say but it, it felt it felt good that, that, that people kind of knew a little bit about me at that point because i've probably got really close friends you can count on one hand you know on half of a hand to be honest with you and i don't really let people in a lot my mates have been my mates since i was since i was since i was a little boy so you, you, you kind of come across people and you kind of interact with people whether it's through work or whether it's through social media and they ain't got a clue what your life is they ain't got a clue what you've been through they ain't got a clue they've not walked in your shoes you know and and on the flip side of I've, I've not walked in their shoes so everybody has a prejudgment of everybody and everybody's life's perfect on social media so to get that kind of 
exposure out there it was, it was like yeah I, I felt i felt all right because people knew a little bit about me then yeah yeah uh, that makes sense and, and like to get like a positive reaction to something like that as well is mm. is a nice feeling and you are right i think that you know that there is a sense of gratification that comes with that as well and that can be a kind of positive aspect that comes with with social media mm. um next question is probably probably quite difficult but for anybody who's listening or anyone you know who comes across this who's finds themselves in a the same situation that you found yourself in as a as a young person mm. what sort of advice would you give to them or what sort of advice would you kind of you know the, as you say you're you're you know you had a, a a difficult period afterwards and 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 it affected you long term you know if you could go back and change anything or do anything differently what what would you advise people no, I'm, I'm really self-aware of what i i where my failings were and um i didn't talk i didn't i didn't grieve my dad's death I, I, you know i was i was a young man i kind of brushed it under the carpet i'll be all right you know nothing can hurt me i'm, I'm going to take on the world that kind of thing and again my my grief probably come out in 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 different ways whether it be aggression whether it be uh, being reckless with my actions and and other people's emotions um so so looking back i think i had one counseling session i probably should have had a lot more um i'm probably ready now to kind of speak about it on on that level um but but again i was i was an impression of a late year old I, th- I thought i was i thought i could be the man of the house overnight and you can't you, know, you, you can't fill your dad's shoes overnight it, it, it takes years to do that if, if if at all that is possible but but yeah my my advice to to a younger self would be you know be talk, talk just talk a little bit more you know it doesn't have to be in a professional environment it doesn't have to be in a clinical environment it can be to your mate it can just be a five minute chat at a pub it can be to your mum whoever it may be but yeah i'd, I'd I'd, I'd certainly talk about it a lot more. I've probably spoken more about my dad's death in the last three, four years than I have in the previous 12. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on advice, I think. I think it, it's, you know, talking's not the be-all and end-all, but it's an, an excellent way of opening the door, isn't it? As you say, even just, like, people often assume it has to be, like you say, talking to a doctor or to, you know, yeah. to might be but it, it doesn't need to be it can just be to your mate down the pub and i think the reaction that you know if 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 it's a proper mate and someone who cares about you i think the reaction that the people that you, you know that you'd get is is heartwarming really because people do genuinely care yeah um, you touched on it a little bit before about your your the the dissertation that you wrote which was about stigmas about mental health in in football yeah. what was the kind of because because I, I think it's an interesting topic and, and it's something that I think is is even even now is quite underexplored. What was sort of your like main motivation for doing that? Was that things that you'd seen from working within the game, or was it just the yeah. topic you were interested yeah. in? First and foremost, again going back to to losing my dad, I, I, I kind of wanted to do something positive um, around mental illness and, and around sort of mental well-being. I was involved in elite football. Um, and I thought, I'd, I'd, you know, my, my, my two biggest passions were probably football, definitely, and, and trying to do something positive. Probably, probably from a selfish point of view, Dan, I wanted to make myself feel better about the whole situation. I wanted to give a little back in terms of um, 
you know de depression and people who, who suffer with mental illness so it's probably it was probably a little bit of that self-gratification to kind of get a few demons off my back as well so there was probably an aspect of that um but again understanding that it's such a under-researched and um the, the, there's, there's a lack of knowledge in and around mental illness within elite sport and like some of my findings was the, the most scariest thing about when i did it is is my, my topic title was help seeking attitudes while still currently playing so active footballers now i asked probably 20 to 25 current footballers whether they would speak to me and none of them wanted to you know they have a bad off with an excuse or they just openly said no i don't want to talk about that so at that point i was kind of thinking you know, how, how am i going to do my dissertation but when you look more into it and, and when you kind of sit back and, and look at the response you're getting that's the answer you, you know I'm, my topic was to study help seeking attitudes in mental illness to people who are still currently playing no one wanted to talk to me so that in itself was was my answer you know people don't want to talk so then you have to start understanding why they don't want to talk so i had to interview ex-pros and, and sort of put everything in past tense so when you was playing how did you feel why did you feel like this why didn't you go down the route of, of seeking help um and a, a, again you know it, it comes back to society you know the stigma in and around mental illness you know the ideology of what it looks like to be a man masculine conformity you know men don't cry men are big strong characters um i think the other one was sporting identity you know what does it look like to be a, a successful sports person well number one you can't show weakness so why would i talk about me feeling weak so although at the point like i say when, when i was doing it i couldn't get anyone to speak to me that that was a a, a massive warning sign and a massive flashing light to say well you've kind of got the answer there george you know but obviously i need <laughs> i needed to collate some data so i had to get x pros so so yeah, it was it was it was a hard study but it was it was a really sort of um um liberating study for myself and it was i i, I don't want to sound sort of like i'm, I'm blowing me on trumpet but it kind of was ahead of its time it was 2016 so you know nearly five years ago um and at that point i can't remember any professional footballer that was in the public eye speaking about mental mental illness you see it now you see leon mckenzie marvin sordell a lad who i used to play with at norwich cedric Onsalon, does loads of work in the media around his, his mental well-being but these are all ex-pros they're not playing at the moment it's interesting you say that about the, the footballers not wanting to talk to you jordan because we had we had a, a current uh football league player on and um, when we were basically asking him about you know, if you've got a problem with well-being or you're getting bullied at the club or, you know, you've got something that you're not sure how to broach, what are the sort of processes for contacting the PFA? What are the, you know, the you know who do you talk to? What do you do? And he was kind of like, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I, you know, it's never even something that, that's, that's, that I've had to deal with, so I suppose I wouldn't need to know. And I was kind of like, just got, I mean, my Monday to Friday, I work in, in, in healthcare and, with mental health as much as anything else, people that shouldn't 
the, the best way it, it should be so readily available that people don't need to yeah, see it. yeah so i was like well the fact that he doesn't know where it is means that yeah. if he ever needs it he won't know how to get it so he won't ever access it yeah. so it'd be like how do you you know where do you find this bang there it is you know where it is because at some point you might need it so it was i think that that rings true what you just said doesn't surprise me that there were current players who didn't who didn't want to talk and and, and like most of the ex players, they kind of say like the reason they didn't talk about it was because they were worried about like losing their place in the team and stuff like that, isn't it? So exactly. So your your first point of call if you have a problem within a football team is your manager first and foremost, really. You know, but if you got to your manager and saying, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really weak or you know I'm not feeling myself, he's, he's probably not going to pick you on a Saturday. Mm. Now, over anything, footballers want to play football, so they'll hide it. You know, if you've got a slight, if you've got a tight hamstring, they'll tell you, they'll tell you it's fine because they want to play, mm. you know? So it, the, the same goes with, with mental, mental illness and mental wellbeing. If they're not feeling themselves, if they, they, they've had a, a bad week or a bad month or they've got problems at home, they're probably not going to tell you, you know, but then again, going, going into my conversations that I did have and I asked the, the direct question, where do you go for help? They're saying, don't know, really, I'd probably go to the, PFA maybe I don't know I'm sure there's something out there <laughs> but, the fact, but the fact that they didn't tell me exactly where like if, if I said to him where would you go if you pulled your pulled your calf I'd go to the physio room do you know what I mean it's, it's readily available for physical physical well-being should, should it be the same for mental well-being yeah absolutely and it's it's once uh, uh, Ryan was I can't remember who interviewed him but Ryan suggested say it was was talking about i wonder if like you know the way clubs have like you know like uh <coughs> physios and doctors and all the rest of it he was talking about you could have like like a head of well-being like there would always be somebody that would yeah. that basically you go and knock on their door and that's the the well-being person for them yeah. i have i have actually recently seen a couple of them them roles advertised i think the first one i saw was, was it leicester I don't want to sort of um, degrade any other clubs, but I think the first one that I saw was Leicester advertised for it on on one of the the, the EFL websites for a player care and wellbeing um, coach, if you like. I, I don't I don't know what what, what the, the actual title was, but I'm, I'm sure it was Leicester who advertised for it. So there is jobs out there, and, and I'm hoping that it becomes a a job in every academy, really, or a job in every football club. Last yeah. question would be then, Jordan, if you had the power to make one change to football, sort of with regards to mental health, what would that change be? Um, I change VAR just outside of mental health. I change VAR straight away, but I think that affects everyone's mental health at the moment. But um, <laughs> probably to to have that point of call where you know you need to go but like, like I said to you early on in the interview I think I think the problems are more to do with society than than sport I think as 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 people and as men especially we need to we need to be um, needs to be okay to talk you know and, and it needs to be okay to not be okay you know I, I don't know whose slogan I'm using there I know I'm using someone's slogan but it needs to be okay to to have a chat and and I'm still not the best at it, you know, in, in the football environment, um, which I work in day in, day out. I still don't have these conversations like I should, but I'm trying. Um, and I think there is people out there who are trying and it's not going to happen overnight. You know, it's 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 like anything. 
in 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 society it's like anything in sport you know racism it still exists racism will still exist in football homophobia still exists in society it still exists in football it's not going to happen overnight we're not going to cure it overnight but we can start to sort of dig away at it and and have these conversations where we might feel a little bit awkward the first time we have that conversation but i guarantee you the second time you have that conversation it'll it'll feel a little bit better welcome back that was uh, jordan's interview danny um we touched on before the theme being learning to feel weak and being the man of the house which is almost a quite a conflicting statement mm. What do you make of that, that showing the weakness to actually show a strength? What are your thoughts on that and, and how Jordan did it? Well, it's interesting, really. We actually talked about weakness and vulnerability and, and redefining those terms and, and, and how we think about them on the show that we did with Hayden on the Elite Football Show. Um, and I think one of the, the, the problems that, that probably happens for a lot of men is kind of how we define vulnerability, how we define weakness. I mean, for me... I would say to go through something really traumatic, to go through something really difficult and to find yourself in a position where you are vulnerable, where you are exposed, to be able to admit that to yourself and admit that to other people and learn to cope with that and still go out every single day. And, you know, Jordan's pursued a career and, and, and done really well with it. He's got a young family that he seems to be getting on really well with as well. The fact that he had that weakness probably turned into a strength for him, that he used the fact that, he had something that was a vulnerability for him that he was able to utilize in a better way. So I think it's about sort of redefining how we talk about weakness, how we talk about vulnerability. I mean, for me, I, I think personally, if you're somebody who wakes up every single day and suffers with, be it depression or anxiety or, you know, even, even just low mood or whatever it might be, if you wake up feeling like that and you've still got the strength within you to get up out of bed to get yourself dressed, to get yourself to work, or even just to, to function every single day. I think that shows an enormous amount of mental strength. And unfortunately, what we've seen for a long time is that having some kind of mental illness or mental health issue, or as you say, even just low moods, when people talk about that, I think people often just assume, oh, they're quite weak mentally. They can't handle it, or, you know, that's not good for them, or, you know, maybe they're, they're finding life difficult. And we see it plays out through sport a lot as well as people are described as being mentally weak for whatever reason whereas I think it's quite the opposite personally and I think if we start to look at how we redefine those terms and how we redefine what we feel about when people talk about their vulnerabilities I think it will help a lot of people in being able to talk about things that they are feeling vulnerable about absolutely and and Ant you told a story before about um, Evan in the park and you're quite open about learning on the job of being a dad and you're obviously going to be the biggest influence or one of the biggest influences in your son's life you're close to your your dad and your, your older brother we've often talked on the show about people growing up maybe without that father figure but to to have it and then lose it must be really difficult and especially in your teenage years when a lot's quite confusing at that time anyway mm-hmm. i mean just how important do you think it is being able to talk as a younger man after going through something as sort of horrific as that, yeah, it's it's just difficult, isn't it? I think I think we've also got to got to got to realise is that like you know it might not necessarily be the the dad that you need to talk to. It just needs to be a figure that you can talk to. I think that's that's more important. There needs to be someone 
in your life that can give you that stability and give you that comfort. That might be a family member, that might be a friend. And often we, you know, we, we do see these, these, you see people use other people as kind of father figures, people to learn from. And that's a, that's a really good thing. So it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, biological father or, or, or whatever. But I think, you know, as you said, you know, with formative years, when you're, when you're 17, 18, 19, there's so much going on. And he, he, he says as well, doesn't he? He says, you know, you are focused on yourself. You are focused on your, your own aspirations. And when that kind of changes and you, and you, you know, you're battling with this, can I be selfish? Can I be, do I have to completely give everything up? I think that's really tough. And I, I actually think, you know, you, there is a, a point where you've got to go, I, I need to be selfish here. And I think most of the time it comes from when you're trying to get better. So when you're trying to trying to recover from 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 stuff, you, you've got a, a mentality of, I'm going to get myself better. If think of people took that through throughout their life and said, look, I'm going to do what's right for me. I don't need to go and spin plates and keep other people happy and, 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 and carry on with this because at the end of the day, if it's taken away from you, you're not looking after yourself. So mm. I think that there is a, I think he mentions in there as well, you know, he, 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 he was a bit, you know, I don't think I don't think he said loose cannon, but he had the the, the times when he was in his twenties where he, he wasn't where he views it as like he wasn't the, the nicest person, but you know, and I think he also says, you know, I don't want to be harsh on myself. Mm. I, I think that's that's a point as well. I think we we've got this like uh, kind of environment now, as particularly as, as as young lads, and you know, <laughs> you know, being harsh on yourself is just ridiculous. Mm. You've got to give yourself a bit of time. You think about it, it's twenty. 20 odd you know there's no chance that that any anyone's got it together in, until they're a lot much older because they've got a lot more experience so, and what does getting it together mean as well well there, there is that as well it's just really tough but i think when you when you do lose that you know I, i've seen people lose that influence in their life and it's just so difficult for them but i think for for them they've just got to try and try and not replace it they've got to try and find something else they've got to try and find someone else and I think that comes from friends and I think it comes from extended family or or anyone really it could be a role model as well it could be someone to look up to it could be something you've read or watched and and I think that's that's what is good about life is you've always got an option I, I think that that needs to be said there always is an option but at 18 19 take the stress off yourself and focus on yourself and I know that might not always be easy but you've got to I think you've got to just stop being so hard yeah. yourself, be yeah. a bit more selfish. And that's not selfish in being like, oh, that's my toy, not yours mm. kind of thing. It's selfish, like looking after yourself. That is a selfish thing. I'm going to buy myself something nice to eat. That's a selfish thing. Like, that, it's that type of selfish. Yeah. And I think when we when we redefine that word, people will, will, will be a lot happier. Be nicer to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Exact I think that's spot on. And... You, can't, you, can't, <clears throat> you can't not be. You, you're the one that's going to have to go through every single day with yourself, what is the point in hurting yourself all the time? And Kelly talked about it on the episode last week where she was talking about when you are in the midst of those feelings, it often affects the way you treat other people. And it may not be that you're a bad person or a nasty person. And Jordan said it about when you were saying there when he was in his 20s, he wasn't the best version of himself. Make yourself the best version of you and then you'll be better to other people. But it, again, it will take time to realise yeah. that though. And that's fine. Yeah. And I, I imagine... It, I mean, I wouldn't want to speak on his behalf, but I imagine he's probably realised that from, you know, the influences on social media, the inf- more talking about these kind of things, more being open. 
and, yeah. and have any environment to do that. And I imagine football is a big environment for them to do that. Yeah, massively. Uh, Ryan, I had something I wanted to ask you, actually. Um, you talked about it earlier on during the, the pandemic. Your your dad was in hospital, wasn't he? Yeah. Quite early on. Um, I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, but before that, you were talking to me about your dad's got a, a heart condition as well, hasn't yeah. he? Um, just in terms of how that affected you, when your dad went into hospital, I know at the time it was, you know, it was it wasn't like touch and go or anything, but it was a stressful situation. It yeah. was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't great, and it was at a time when we weren't one hundred percent sure what was really going on with all of the COVID yeah, stuff. Sure. How did that kind of make you feel at that time? Um, it was it was quite a vulnerable situation. It, it wasn't helped at all by the fact that we couldn't visit him. So there was a there was a moment which really got to me when. We rang him and he didn't even have the energy to speak. Um, and he, he basically, he didn't put the phone down, but it was one of them where he wasn't really responding. So we just had to put the phone down. And I remember sitting there and my mum looked worried and then we knew he wasn't right because he would never do that. And it was just like, it's not a guilt, but it, uh, he's there by himself. You can't see him. It, it was just, you just felt like that sick feeling in your stomach. like, And it was hard to concentrate on things like work or even like going to footy and stuff. It was just on the back of your mind. So... Yeah, it was just like a vulnerability more than anything, and he's he's been in hospital before in the past. He's he's relatively fit most of the time, mm. which is what made it difficult. But this time, not being able to actually see him, ask him how he was, or even speak to doctors, you couldn't mm. even really ring up. You'd you'd maybe get a ward clerk who'd give you like bits of information, and in the end, because my girlfriend works in hospital, she was ringing up for us because she kind of knew what to ask and mm. how to ask it, um, and get and feeding us back information. So he was in for eight days. There's a point where he was on oxygen, and it, and it was like a, a really scary time. And even since he's not a hundred percent, but his personality's come back, and it's just allowed us all to start relaxing a little bit more. Yeah. Which you don't realise sometimes some of the stresses you have because you start living with them. Mm. So whether you're a bit uptight, you're a bit maybe moody, or you're not sleeping well, and then suddenly as as his health got better, there was like a bit of a correlation between like my mum relaxing, me relaxing, my sister, and yeah, he's. I found myself being a nicer person to other people probably, but I don't really realise that without looking back on it yeah. at the time, yeah. So, yeah, it's hard because when, if it was your mum or your sister, because they're so good at communicating, it's easy for them to, mm. to like, they don't stop talking, do they, when something's yeah. up. And when it's your dad, it's kind of like a, oh, give yourself a nuggie sort of thing, yeah, do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, And then you sort of, I think with my dad being how he is, he is a bit old school. He never wants to say to me when he knows when I'm upset about something. He wouldn't. He he just sort of does it in a different way. He does it in quite a good way, to be honest. He'll just mm. let you know without saying, "Stop worrying." Yeah. You see what I mean? So yeah, it was difficult, mate. It was, and it. I can't imagine what it would be like going through that at a younger age. I mean, I'm 28 now, and what I think's funny, well, not funny, but what Anne touched on before is when you are like 15, 16, 17. Your role models tend to be your friends, yeah, but they don't know what they're doing either. No. Like I remember being like fourteen, fifteen, and all I cared about was how I appeared to my friends, what how I spoke was, how I'd impressed them, what I'd wear would be how I impressed them, how I showed myself. Like in school, there's always like stupid things that you people would be embarrassed to do, and so you wouldn't do them. And it's when you get older and you get into like your twenties, you realise like they're my role models are like my uncles, my dads, me, my mum, me people you work with maybe a bit more senior than you and and your outlook changes massively i think when you stop 
deciding your role models based on the people who are just around you and you want to impress and you make them the people who are going to make me a better person I think your outlook changes massively yeah and um, I think it goes back to that thing that I was saying yeah. before about being nicer to yourself you don't need to impress anybody no <laughs> but try telling to. a 14 15 year old no, kid that but I mean I think that's we've spoken about it before in terms yeah. of various different things you oh, know when, it's hard not to fall into that when, trap yeah especially when you can call them mosher for wearing jeans <laughs> And the thing is, though, everyone everyone <laughs> has a, a, like a favourite teacher, don't they? Yeah. And that's probably because it was a, a male or female who were in the 30s and 40s, when you were 15, who told you or showed you something you never knew, and it probably was something, a bit of advice that went a long way. Yeah. Because you've, been, you've spent your, your teenage years looking in the wrong areas for, for things to impress with. Like, I just wasted my teenage years playing footy manager and walking the streets and stuff, which you wouldn't change looking <laughs> back. Walking walk in the streets. Honestly, that's the stupid stuff you do. You just find yourself outdoors all the time yeah. <laughs> in a group. It's like a mob mentality. But um, no, it, 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 it is true. And I think what Jordan did there is he talked about, he said, didn't he, at one stage, the three easiest words should be, I need help, but they end up being the hardest. three hardest yeah. um, which is true and everyone says we should talk more it's getting people to talk more and I think that is still the conundrum that that, that people can't get their head around how do you do it how do you, how do you open your mouth um, and we touched on it before haven't we about environment so yeah I think Jordan as a coach and as a person he genuinely seems like somebody who will teach that to the lads mm. he coaches and I think that's important the more people you have in football the more coaches you have in football that are going to make these young men or these young boys turn into men and help them feel more comfortable can only be a positive yeah 100% brilliant um, that's all that's our wrap up then anyone else got anything else to say or uh, if not can you maybe give us a little bit of signposting towards yeah absolutely we'll post some uh, some links and stuff on the on the, the episodes uh, description which we always do but yeah if you you know you have been affected by any of the themes in the episodes then you can obviously reach out to places like Calm Mind uh, Papyrus and uh, obviously Samaritans as well who you can ring 24-7 for for anything at all which is sort of mental health related um, yeah you can find us on Twitter at Mark and underscore man um, and you know if you want to slide into our DMs if you want to give us a little message we're always here um, I'm not convinced that we'll give you any great advice but yeah feel free to reach out we can, <laughs> we can point you in the right direction to somebody else um, so yeah brilliant uh, that's oh yeah and use the hashtag where's the talking lads yeah do use that hashtag that's all from us then we're going to leave you with Jordan's quick fire and see you soon thanks for listening um, so first up an easy one Messi or Ronaldo Messi easy all day every day twice on a Sunday <laughs> not agreeing with Richard Keyes who went Ronaldo and then we're asked why he just went power no. <laughs> Messi all day every day next question <laughs> worst piece of coaching advice you've ever heard God, where do you start? There's been so many cringy moments. Worst piece of coaching advice I've ever heard. I once played for a manager who said the team had nothing under their left tit. So <laughs> <laughs> make it out what you will, but I, I, yeah, that's probably the, the worst bit. You've got nothing under your left tit. So I used to play for a guy who used to be obsessed with like it was like he it was like he'd kind of he kept giving us this instruction and whenever he gave it it was kind of like he'd kind of like tell us like get in gathering lads I've, I've, I've figured out football <laughs> to knock the ball off the other person's shim, the opposition shin pads to do a one-two with yourself wow 
like his no, and it used to be like he'd be like they won't see it coming lads <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the other one was like you know when you knew what the gaffer was going to say and you knew what his assistant was going to say. So so we we used to have a we used to have a like sweepstaker how long it would take him to say certain words. Now one was rotate the ball quickly. We'd have a sweepstake like forty five seconds, fifty seconds, fifty five seconds, and I'd be on the timer. And as soon as they said it, the lads had just been stitches. And, and <laughs> the gaffer didn't have a clue what he was what we were like that. But yeah, that happens all the time. Favorite footballer of all time. Uh, Roy Keane, I think. Roy Keane, close, close second is Chris Waddle. What, what made me kind of fall in love with football? But even even Roy Keane now, just as a person, I think he's my favourite person. <laughs> just everything he says, you know, you, you, you're walking on eggshells with him. But but yeah, I, I just loved him as a player. I thought he had a little bit of everything. Favorite football moment of all time? Um, two, two really, and and it's it's. It's weird because I, I, it wasn't a team that I support. Well, it, one of the England moments was obviously, but it was just the the moment that I was in, and it was both of them was was with my dad. Um, <clears throat> and my dad weren't massive on football really. He, he liked it, but he wasn't massive on it. But these two moments got him off his chair. One was the 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 ninety eight um, ninety nine Champions League final when Man United won in the last two minutes, Sheringham and Solskjaer. I just remembered. I don't support Man United, but I like English clubs to do well in Europe. And we, we, you know, we're both off the, off the sofa, jumping around like madmen. And the other one was Beckham when he put the free kick in against Greece. And same scenario, you know, putting us through to was it the World Cup or was it Euros? World Cup, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and again, yeah, it got me and my dad off, off the sofa, jumping around the, the living room like like mentalists. Just, I've just noticed the next few. It sort of degenerates a little bit after this, Jordan. I can only apologize. And I feel like I didn't write them. Um, <laughs> so, um, Jeremy Clarkson, Mel B, David Seaman, Snog, Marry, Avoid. Fucking hell. Uh, I can't stand Clarkson. <laughs> I can't stand Clarkson. So, I'm avoiding him at all costs. Um... You'd probably snog. Is it semen pre-tash or semen post-tash? Ooh, big question. What do you reckon, right? Tash or no tash? I think it makes it odd if you give him the tash, so let's go tash. Yeah, semen tash. Uh, <laughs> I'm ponytail. I'm ponytail. I'm snogging him. I'm snogging him. <laughs> Running your there. <laughs> I, I, I kind of now we've now we've confirmed the tashes. I kind of want to feel the tash. I'm, I'm snogging <laughs> semen. And then I just think you'd have a great time with Mel B, wouldn't you? So, see, that's what I went with as well. You'd, yeah. you'd, you'd, you'd marry her, but you'd be divorced two years later, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, it'd yeah. be a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah, cracking two years. <laughs> Join a list of Eddie Murphy. Um, <laughs> they all go very Yorkshire based from this. So, Guy right. Fawkes was from Yorkshire. Right. Infamously part of a failed gunpowder plot. I can't even say this. Have you ever made a terrible decision that landed you in trouble? Not as bad as this. I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to day named after you, have you? <laughs> yeah, not, not as bad as this. Um, too many to mention. And and, and probably if I, I said them, I'd probably be getting a lot of people in trouble. So no comment, lads, I'll be honest. So Arctic Monkeys, Pulp, Death Leopard, 
the human league and bring me the horizon do you know what they all have in common we're all from sheffield correct um somebody else from sheffield is sean bean can you yeah. give us your best sean bean sean bean bastard impression the thing is with Sean Bean, anything he does, he does it in a Sheffield accent with his or two, just for you, or two. <laughs> so I was going to ask, what's a better atmosphere, Hillsborough or Bramall Lane? But now I know you're a Sheffield fan. Do you have a, a best Steel City derby atmosphere that you can remember? Um, from a Sheffield United point of view, they'll say that they call it the Bouncing Day Massacre when they did us 4-2 at Hillsborough. Um, we were 2-0 down. Brought it back to 2 2. Hillsborough's bouncing. I think something like 24 seconds after Mark Doffy sticks it in the top bin and Hillsborough goes silent. Yeah, so, from, from their point of view, from their point of view, um, that's probably their their favourite derby moment. From Sheffield Wednesday's point of view, he's Wembley 93, you know, FA Cup semi final. Chris Waddle steps up five minutes in, sticks it in the top corner from 30 yards. You know, and no matter what happens in the Sheffield derbies, that will always be the best moment and the best derby moment. Fact. Mike Wright makes his way to the edge of the area, moving up and down, and uh, is followed by Dean everywhere he goes. Viv Anderson's come up on the near side as we look. Chris Waddle, is he going to have a crack? Oh, he does, and he scores! Anything Paul Gascoigne can do, Chris Waddle can do. Alan Kelly beaten before he touched the ball. It's happened again in a Wembley semi-final. Clean strike, curling away from the goalkeeper. Sheffield Wednesday had the lead and we barely played a minute and a half.